Anyway, Sara, how are you doing? I feel like I should be asking you that question. Me? Why? Well, you know, given recent events. Oh, yeah. I'm fine. It's, it's all fine, finally. You don't sound so certain. No, Sara, really. I'm just tired, that's all. Look, I've known you well enough since university to know when you're lying. I'm not lying. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. One more time and I'll believe you. I hate you so much. <laughs> Wait. Give me one second. Sure. What? 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 What's going on? No one got hurt? Hello? Oh God. Yesterday! Hassan, Hassan, you're freaking me out. How long? Wh what? Hello? Hello? Hassan, I've got to go. What? Are you serious? Hello? Hassan? Oh my god. Hello? How does a democracy find itself on the path to a decade-long military dictatorship? Well, a starting point would be a lot of tension, then let it go unresolved for so long that just enough people grow frustrated for it to break out into violence across the country and last for about 120 days. Sounds simple enough, right? This is Anatomy of a Coup. Our story begins in the year 1977 in Pakistan. It's March 7th and elections for the National Assembly have just happened. A year earlier than they were intended to. That's how sure the current Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was of his and his own Pakistan People's Party's popularity. He was a populist who brought in crowds of the thousands. He spoke of egalitarianism, social justice and human rights. What reason did he have to doubt such a thing? There is no short answer. There are many dark spots that plagued his legacy. From press censorship to unpopular land and labor reform policies. But perhaps what is most relevant to this situation was his fierce anti-competitive practices. His constitutional amendments victimized political opponents, and reports from Dalai camp show that his political opponents were imprisoned and tortured there. Even members of his own party, and the military, felt dissatisfied following the creation of the Federal Security Force, a paramilitary organization which had a penchant for targeting any threats to Bhutto's power, be they adversary or associate, and effectively silenced them by any means necessary. It's this history that led to the creation of a rival nine-party coalition, from left to centrist to right-wing, known as the Pakistan National Alliance, or PNA, with one goal in mind, to challenge Bhutto's power. Shortly after Bhutto's sweeping victory in the election was announced, the PNA called foul, their reasoning being that the election was rigged. Initially, it was brushed off as some excuse to explain why they lost by an explicably great margin, but later, reports emerged about polling stations being closed for hours, ballot boxes removed at gunpoint, and marked ballots found in the streets. And while Bhutto wasn't directly involved in these plans, he did encourage that frame of mind, and that was enough to get the ball rolling. Protests broke out in cities like Karachi and Hyderabad on March 11th, demanding Bhutto's resignation and new elections. While initially intended to be peaceful, thousands of protesters were arrested. And if they weren't safely locked away, things quickly took a violent turn between protesters and the police, with multiple injuries and the police firing tear gas and shooting at protesters. What's interesting is that quite early on, both the PNA and Bhutto wanted these protests to come to an end, just not in the same way. 
The PNA called on Bhutto to meet these demands and even sent a letter to the president at the time to call for new elections, but he refused, stating that it would only spell disorder and chaos. And Bhutto extended an olive branch very early on that all this would be over if they would just talk it out. But the feeling wasn't mutual. I think in a lot of these things, different parties, different movements, they hedge their bets. So if they think that this is, once again, just a sort of a, a look at the trends. But if uh, a political party or a movement or a group of protesters think that they have momentum on their side, think that public is with them, they, it proves This is Dr. Reza Saeed from the University of Warwick. He then goes on to explain that once the belief of strength and momentum is on their side, then it becomes very difficult to come to the negotiation table. And in these political maneuverings, whoever comes to the negotiating table first is perceived as the weaker party. Tariq Ali said that perhaps if Bhutto had declared the elections null and void from the beginning, then perhaps what comes next could very well have been avoided. Hello? Hi, Sarah. The campaign office gave me your letters, so I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, great. Thank you so much for getting back to me so quickly. That's uh, no problem. Happy to help you, even after our university days. Pretty sure it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. Anyways, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good. How, what about you? Where are you? I'm good. I'm actually outside right now, but... Oh, sorry. I, I can call later. No, it's fine. I'm on my lunch break. Besides, God knows when you'll be able to reach me next. That bad, huh? Oh yeah, but it's exciting. I actually went to a protest. No way, that is so unlike you. Yeah, well, inflation and political unrest can make anyone go do crazy things. Like getting yourself killed? No, like... Oh my god! Oh my god! What, what was that? What, what's happening? Crap, a riot is breaking out. I have to go see this. Oh my, no, 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 no. Oh my god, are you insane? No, just... You're, you're going to die, Alana. Quit being so dramatic, I gotta go. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Stay safe. By April, the protests had reached Lahore and other areas of Punjab, with major cities seeing work and transportation come to a complete stop. The wheel jam strike saw protesting squatters on rail tracks, communication lines being cut off, factories and educational institutions being closed, essentially paralyzing cities. As the chaos spread across the country, so did the violence. Arrests rose to the 10,000s, thousands more were injured, and on the 9th of April, 18 protesters were killed. And the numbers just climbed up to the hundreds from there, some from being fired on by the police, and others from gang violence between supporters of the rival parties. I think these measures were sort of too little, too late. But in any case, once again, as I've said previously, that when you look at a snapshot in politics or you're looking at the disorder in 1977, all of this has a very complex history, right? Yeah. Uh, and a wider background and sort of uh, the history that plays into it as well. So for instance, Bhutto had used this idea of Islamic socialism yeah. previously. But people know, or people knew by that time, 
that there was some sort of a populist politics going on which meant that those who considered themselves to be sort of uh, hardcore socialists they weren't part of the camp or some of them were not part of the Bhutto's uh, Bhutto camp later on and even some of the Islamic parties were not part of his discourse or his uh, movement later on so this idea of Islamic socialism was not taken seriously and then there were some other things that went on previously as well so for instance if you've looked at his videos and documentary evidence there's a very renowned or famous video of one of his public public speeches where he claims that and it's, it's used quite widely as well that he says yes i drink but i don't drink the blood of the common man right and that's a very sort of powerful phrase that he used and that his supporters used as well so later on when this person who ho- who has such a strong feeling about sort of how to sort of balance i don't know his own tendencies or his own desires or traits and so on and keep his personal issues apart from politics aside from politics brings in prohibition people are not going to take it seriously right that's the same thing that happens with the changes that he brings in uh, 1974 he his the changes that he brought in the constitution yeah. uh, and so on and so forth so i think any changes about bringing sharia in was just an effort to appease the opposition by that time and the opposition wasn't too keen on taking these things seriously hello this is hassan speaking hassan hi look sala I really don't have time to talk right now. Yeah, I know. I just I wanted to ask if you knew where Alana is. Well, but I know where Alana is. We haven't spoken in like years. I know. I just I I haven't heard from her in a few days and I was worried that maybe she'd gotten, you know, arrested. You cannot be telling me she's been getting involved with that crowd. Hassan, this is your friend you're talking about. You're telling me the same girl couldn't go to the cinema alone is out there shouting in the street well when i last spoke to her yeah maybe huh. well, good luck to her all she's going to get out of it is a sore throat i cannot believe you just said that okay i'm sorry i didn't really mean that it's just the principal is going to get you into trouble then you're on the wrong side and you're not well no not really because i'm trying to stop the trouble side i'm trying to save these people this country from itself and you think pointing a gun at someone is the way to do it look i don't i don't agree that people should be shot at or even killed frankly speaking none of this is worth it but these are our orders unless you want a civil war to break out no look sara i'll try and find a lot but it's out there's not much else i can do so i really have to go The fear that civil war could break out saw three cities, Karachi, Lahore, and Hyderabad, put under martial law at the end of April. Curfew was imposed, and it was strictly regulated by the army, with some very specific orders on how to do so. It's here our story gets a little, no, scratch that, very murky. For starters, it remains debatable what the last straw was that brought in martial law. 
Some say it was the wheel jam strike. Others say it was the gang violence. Whatever the reason may be, martial law brought with it a new element into an already chaotic situation. It's hard to give one definitive answer to the questions of when or even why the military got involved, which one might imagine, given the title, isn't really helpful. What's more interesting is the possibility of answers to those questions. For that, we'll need to look at where the army was before all this came to fruition. After 1971, the military was in a weak spot and had lost favor with the public. And in the years between, it more or less stayed that way until this situation. They mostly played a peripheral role in the beginning, removing squatters from the train tracks and helping Bhutto devise responses to these agitations. But when regulating martial law and curfew came into the picture, it didn't do much to change their reputation. There were orders to shoot anyone violating the curfew. And now, the military could be pulling the trigger. This wasn't a reality anyone took too lightly. All it did was cloud the country in a blanket of uncertainty. The question of how the military felt about all of this was no exception. Demonstrations continued to happen, legality be damned. But in some circumstances, the military refused to intervene. Although that's not to say anyone got away with it. PNA leaders, if they weren't already in jail, were arrested in raids in the middle of the night and had their homes searched by the government. And then there's the flip side. When the military did decide to intervene, they shot at protesters, inevitably killing and wounding them. One particular incident in Lahore involved a demonstration in which several thousand men after the Friday prayers, the only time the curfew was lifted, confronted soldiers. They began waving their shirts at the soldiers, bearing their chests and taunting them, daring them to shoot. They opened fire, killing three. There was a conflict of action or inaction on the military's part. All it did was cloud the country in a blanket of uncertainty. The questions of who lives, who dies, were no exception. Hello? Hi. Alana? Oh, thank goodness you're all right. Why would I not be? W were you not arrested? No. I'd been calling you for several days and you weren't answering. I got so worried, Alana. Yeah, well, the curfew makes it impossible to go back home in time, so I had to stay at a friend's. Oh my god, I can't imagine what you're going through. I mean, it could be worse. Yeah, never mind. This is actually the worst. Well, at least you're safe. Just don't put yourself out there too What much. the hell does that mean? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's with the attitude? I'm just trying to look out for you. I appreciate it, but I don't need your supervision. I can handle this. Brady, can you? Because the way I see it, you keep trying to get yourself well, killed Well, I'm sorry for this. caring so much about the fact that we can't even buy bread without being shot at. Asana, this has to stop. Oh, don't worry, because since no one's talking, we're all stuck like this. Please, Alana, please, please stay okay, safe. Okay, fine, bye. Bye. June comes, and the PNA and Bhutto finally sit down and talk. Martial law goes, and for the first time in two months, 
it seems that things might go back to normal as the violence fizzled out. Bhutto and the PNA leaders were courteous enough to one another. The Saudi Arabian and Libyan ambassadors had a part to play in this. I mean, considering the fact that they reached an agreement in 13 days is a pretty good indication of that. The PNA conceded on their demand for resignations, and arrangements were made for new elections, including a committee that would oversee how they were conducted. There was a minor dispute on the powers that they would have, but that was quickly resolved on the 3rd of July. However, the next day, the PNA threw out the accord reached, but Bhutto didn't waver. He was willing to reopen as many issues as they wanted. Close call, am I right? Well, as it turns out, it couldn't have been any closer. Why the military staged the coup, or Operation Fair Play as they called it, well, it was like I said, there's no definitive answer. General Ziel Hook, who was handpicked by Bhutto for chief of the army staff at the time, portrayed the choice as a spontaneous reaction to a difficult situation. The breakdown in negotiations had meant that the army had lost its patience and his hand was forced, lest civil war broke out. But there are some signs that point to the possibility of this being planned. I mean, early on, one of the PNA leaders practically called on the army to save the country. He was pressed by a member of the army to rush his negotiations with the opposition, hoping that it wouldn't give time to General Zia to execute his plans. In fact, Bhutto might have unintentionally planted the seeds for his own downfall. He kept the army posted on the process of negotiations, included them in cabinet meetings, and he even lectured them on the possibility of a coup, going so far as to say that governing a country was no bed of roses. Clearly, that did little to change their minds. Some suggest this whole situation was the in the army needed to rehabilitate their image. The aforementioned dark spots of Bhutto's legacy left the impression of a slow move to authoritarian rule. If the army was seen as stepping in and stopping that in its tracks, then maybe they would regain public favor. It's hard to say which of these is the most significant factor, and perhaps there's no need to. I look back and see that all three could plausibly be a factor, because let's face it, anatomy is messy. Disorder is just as messy, if not more so. Combine the two together, and well, you're looking deep into a sea of consistencies and contradictions. The way I see it, political tension was inevitable, and so was any form of chaos. But beyond that, virtually anything could have happened. Nonetheless, in the early hours on the 5th of July. Anyway, Sana, how are you doing? I feel like I should be asking you that question. Me? What? Well, you know, given recent events. Mm, yeah, I'm fine. It's, it's all fine, finally. Thank you for listening to Anatomy of a Coup. This podcast was written, edited, and hosted by Laman Ahmed, that's me. Thanks go to Noor Bakhsh for Sarah, Patukita for Alana, and Laith Mullah for Hassan.